Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Rachel Lipman. When we hear about vaccinations these days, all too often it involves anti-vaccination myths and misinformation. Misinformation that has led some parents to stop vaccinating their kids. Dr. Ken Haller responds a bit differently to the anti-vaccination movement. As a pediatrician, he regularly has conversations with parents and works to assure them that childhood vaccinations are safe. He also participates in vaccine trials to help advance research at St. Louis University's Vaccine Center. And he joins me now in studio. Dr. Ken Haller, thanks for being here today. Great to be here. Medical misinformation, I would have to think, is probably as old as medicine itself. Um, What's the origin of this this latest round of misinformation, as best as you can kind of tell? Well, the uh, the sort of the tipping point for this came in 1998 when there was an article published in a uh, in a British journal called The Lancet by a uh, a person called uh, Andrew Wakefield. Unfortunately, uh, what Wakefield did not reveal to the editors of The Lancet were that he had a lot of uh, commercial interests in his recommendations being taken. Um, that he did not actually uh, uh, obtain the patients the way he said in the in the article it turned out that the article was eventually retracted and um uh, and he lost his medical license nevertheless uh the thing is that people have always had a kind of a a kind of a freighted reaction or you know a relationship with vaccines going all the way back the idea of putting something into your body that in another form might cause disease is one of those things that that a lot of people have never felt good about even at the beginning of vaccines you know Edward Jenner in the 18th century so um, what what uh, Wakefield did was he sort of brought it to a whole new level by claiming that the MMR vaccine the combination caused autism that has since been completely completely disproved uh, but the thing is, it did sort of hit sort of a nerve with people way back in that lizard brain of ours that says, you know, if someone says something scary that about your child's health, you tend to take that very seriously. And so people have taken this seriously, even though there's no scientific evidence of it. Because there was this pseudoscientific, fake right, scientific right. evidence out there originally. Right, right, right. Is there something about this particular moment in time with the technology that we have and and what's out there that makes this round of anti-vaccination movements particularly insidious or troubling to you as a physician? Yeah, yeah, there is. I mean, first of all, I think that uh, vaccines in a way have been a victim of their own success. I am old enough to have had measles myself and to have had mumps and to have had chicken pox. Also old enough to have had chicken pox. MMR (laughs) was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've, I've had all of those and I remember how miserable I was. I also know that when I had uh, measles in 1963, I was one of about 4 million kids that year who had measles, and about 4,000 kids died of it. So the thing is, the fact that that these diseases are now so, uh, so uncommon makes it easy for people to think, well... My kid's probably not going to get it. I don't need to go through that. I've heard bad things about it. I just don't want to. Uh, I just don't want to put my kid through that. And and people are spectacularly bad at risk assessment. And this is one of those risk assessment things where it can seem almost reasonable not to vaccinate your kids because I've not seen it, and yet these things are still out there. I mean, at Cardinal Glennon, we still have kids who come in with pertussis or whooping cough. We still have kids who come in with uh, occasionally with um, uh, with mumps or, or other diseases. That that, that are life-threatening. So these things are still out there. And uh, what, what makes this really bad is, again, I've been around long enough as a professional to see certain diseases almost disappear, like hemophilus meningitis, uh, hemophilus epiglottitis, 
uh, back in the That's 19th. Infl- one is an inflammation of the brain lining, and the other is an inflammation, I believe, of the throat. Yeah, yeah. And about f- and, and each year, about 5,000 infants would get meningitis, infection of the brain, and about 5,000 toddlers would get epiglottitis, blocking off their breathing pipe. And a lot of those kids would die. After the introduction of the Haemophilus vaccine, that dropped by 95%. And so if people don't get their kids vaccinated, these diseases are still out there, and that's what I'm scared of. And I think te- I wonder if technology, social media, just the access that people would have to reinforcing views mm-hmm. makes that difficult as well. Yes. I think that one of the problems that, that physicians have is that um, we tend to think that a scientific argument by itself is persuasive. And so when I talk to parents... I don't get to the evidence about this until I sit down and have a conversation with them about what is it that you're scared of? What is it that is really frightening you about this? Because to to have a child is to fall into love and into fear in ways you never imagined possible before. So if I don't address that fear and tell parents, yeah, having fear for your child's safety is normal, it's natural, it's healthy, let's talk about that, but let's talk about what you should really be afraid of, which is these diseases. If I don't do that, I can't get to the facts. And what are some of the common reasons that parents are giving you or the common fears they're expressing when they say, I have questions about giving my child this vaccine? Well, the things they've heard, again, that goes back to the Wakefield article about MMR and autism. People are afraid of uh, what they call toxins that are in vaccines. Uh, um, People are afraid of all kinds of things that they've heard. They know someone who knows somebody where something bad happened. Um, The thing is that... uh, one of the things about vaccines that makes it difficult is that for something like, say, seatbelts or car seats, everyone knows someone who's been saved by a car seat. Everyone knows who's someone who's been saved by a seatbelt. We don't really know who's been saved by vaccines. I can't walk to the gallery and point to a kid in a stroller and say that kid would have died of measles if that kid hadn't been vaccinated, or that kid would have died of hemophilus meningitis if he hadn't gotten a vaccine. I can't point to the successes because they're invisible. However, if someone does have a bad reaction, and very, very, very occasionally a bad reaction happens, that is a narrative that sticks in their mind and makes it, uh, and makes it uppermost in terms of, of uh, accentuating their fear. This has to be frustrating as a medical professional who has seen things personally and professionally. How do you keep that frustration out of that conversation? Well, I will say that it takes a moment (laughs) before I go in the room. If if someone says, this is a mom who does not want to vaccinate her kid, I have to take a deep breath and put myself in her place, in a place of having a very different knowledge base, and recognize that this is someone who loves their child and they want the best for their child. So when I walk into a room and I introduce myself, I have to, uh, I mean, it's just really important to say, tell me what it is that, that you're concerned about. When I can get to that place where people see that I can recognize that their fear makes perfect sense, then even if it's not based on fact, the fear is real and that has to be acknowledged. And when I do that, that's when I can see that we can start to have a conversation. And a lot of times I will get to the point where uh, the parent will say, okay, Let's go ahead and do it. How often would you say that that is something you're able to do? You're able to allay their fears and they, they will agree to vaccinate? I would say in the in the moment, in the office, about, about half the time. And, uh, 
And what often happens is even if I don't get them to agree at that point, what they'll do is they'll think about it and come back at the next visit and say, I want to talk about this some more. And then about another half of those will go ahead and get their children vaccinated. I'd like to invite our listeners into the conversation with pediatrician Ken Haller. If you have a question or a comment about childhood vaccination, you can give us a call at 382-8255. That's 314-382-TALK. You can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. Ken Heller, more and more uh, pediatricians will not keep on unvaccinated children as patients. What is your take on that policy of some of your fellow physicians? Well, this is a very controversial um, issue. Uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics has wrestled with it. Uh, that's our professional organization with 65,000 pediatricians nationwide. Um, a couple of years ago, the, the academy decided that, that physicians can make that choice if they have had a conversation with the parent about it, explained the importance of vaccines, and explained what the implications are of these diseases. The, um, in our office at Donnie Pediatrics, which is the pediatric office at Cardinal Glennon, we see everyone. Uh, we don't refuse anyone, even if they do not want to have their kids vaccinated, because what we're afraid of is that people will then uh, turn away from uh, medical care completely, and that could lead to worse health outcomes for their children. It also allows us to continue having a conversation. Now, there are now the thing is that in St. Louis, for the most part, the uh, the rate of vaccinations of kids who go to pediatric offices is relatively high. There are parts of the country, though, where it is much lower. And so in certain offices, there are parents who've said to their pediatrician, if you accept people who don't vaccinate their kids, I'm not coming to your office. So physicians in those practices are getting pressure from both sides. Like I said, in our practice, because we, we strive to say, serve everybody, and because we are a teaching institution where we're trying to model these behaviors for our residents and our students, it's really important that we see everyone in the practice. You're also starting to see states moving toward eliminating a lot of the exemptions mm -hmm. for childhood vaccinations. Policy speaking wise, is this the right move in an attempt to boost vaccination rates? I think it really is. The, the thing is that there's only a really small uh, percentage of parents, perhaps 2%, who would be the sort of hardcore anti-vaxxers. There's maybe another 10 to 20% who, who have questions about it but can be persuaded. Now, the thing is that there are studies that show that even just saying to a parent when they come into the office, here are the vaccines we're going to do today, that will persuade about half of people if they have even a little bit of a question. Uh, what sometimes happens is that physicians will say things like, well, it's recommended that we give these vaccines today. Do you want to do that? Well, I don't do that because that would be like me going to my accountant in April and him saying, well, most people pay their taxes now. Would you like to do that? And I think, does that mean I don't have to? <laughs> so and wouldn't it be wonderful yeah, if you yeah, could be yeah. like, you know, I, know. I think I'll rather pay them in May. I'm just going to opt out of that. Um, the thing is that a strong recommendation from a professional is one of the most important things you can do. And when when a, uh, a state government, a, a state agency says, 
we recommend this. This is based on the best evidence. That will overcome a lot of the, uh, uh, the issues that people have. But we also have to make access to vaccines uh, easier because what can happen is that sometimes people opt out of vaccines because it's, it's hard to get to the pediatrician's office or they have to wait a long time at the health department and they just don't have time to do it. So part of public policy has to be funding that and making sure that if we're requiring people to get vaccines, that they can get them easily and quickly and safely. Rob in Creef Corps has a question about the vaccine injury program. Rob, go ahead. You are on with Dr. Ken Haller. Oh, yeah, doctor. How are you Hi. doing today? Good. How are you? Um, have you ever heard of Bayer's? Yes, I have. Yes. Um, could you maybe explain to the public what Bayer's is? Sure. Back in uh, the late 1980s, uh, the uh, Congress passed the National uh, Child Vaccination Injury Act, and that uh, started... Uh, two programs primarily. One of them is VAERS, which is the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. That's administered by the CDC. And if you have a uh, an event that happens within a few days after a vaccine and you think it was related, at least in time, to the vaccine, you can report that. Now, I've reported to VAERS when something has happened that I thought you know, might be in, uh, connected to a vaccine. Uh, parents can do that. Other people in the community can do that. You just go to cdc.gov, look this up, and you can report what you think might be a side effect of the vaccine. And 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 um, how often is are these funds tapped into for true adverse events to vaccines? And how often do true adverse events happen for vaccines? Well, the the uh, what, what happens is the VAERS system is uh, is there to uh, create a database. So what happens is people, epidemiologists who look at uh, the incidence of, of illness and things like that, will look at the data that comes in. Now, a lot of the data is just sort of scattered things that would happen within 24, you know, that happen in 24 hours after a vaccine, but there's no pattern to it. Back in 1998, I believe it was, there was a vaccine against a, uh, an intestinal virus called rotavirus. Um, that was put on the market. It had been tested quite thoroughly. But what happened was that in all the reports that were put into the VAERS system, there, were, there seemed to be a spike of a kind of intestinal obstruction called intussusception uh, in babies who had had it. And this seemed to be quite significant. And when they looked at it, they felt that this is something that uh, that was real and probably an effect of the vaccine. What happened initially was that an alert was put out that if a child has had any problems, intestinal problems, they probably shouldn't get this vaccine, and eventually it was taken off the market. So this shows me that the system does work. Um, a lot of times, like I said, there will be all kinds of reports that go in there. They don't really fit any, into any pattern, but in this case they did, and it, it really uh, had a good effect in terms of vaccine policy. Rob, I hope that answered your question about that vaccine injury program. Ed in Warrington, Missouri, has a question about the number of vaccines out there now. Mm -hmm. Ed, go ahead. Hi, thank you for taking my call. was just wondering about why such an increased number of vaccinations, like from when we were a child, Five right. or six to well over 14 today. Why so many and why mandatory? Well, this is actually good news. This shows that we have vaccines now against things that we weren't able to vaccinate against earlier. Uh, uh, if you were listening earlier, one of the things I talked about was a type of bacteria called Haemophilus B. And what Haemophilus B does is in young babies, it can cause meningitis. In toddlers, it can cause a blockage of the throat called epiglottitis. And about 10,000 kids a year would get this, and many of them would die of it. Uh, with the Haemophilus vaccine, which is given at two months, four months, and after a year of age, that has dropped by over 95%. 
Uh, we also have vaccines against uh, a bacteria called pneumococcus, which wasn't around when I was growing up. Uh, that has decreased uh, other that has decreased meningitis and sepsis, as well as ear infections. And so the thing is that there are a lot of bacteria and viruses out there that cause disease in kids. And I would love to have more vaccines. One of them that is sort of a holy grail for those, uh, those of us in pediatrics is RSV or respiratory syncytial virus. That causes a lot of hospitalizations um, in, in young babies, particularly premature babies in the first few months after birth. And uh, if we could get a vaccine against that, that would reduce hospital admissions and uh, ICU admissions and even death quite a bit. So, so the, the fact that we have more vaccines is actually good news. I'm wondering how much the fact that there are just more vaccines to be given kind of can play into the fears that parents have about vaccinations. Right. I, I think that one of the things that I've heard as as an uh, as a concern is there's so many more vaccines, the drug companies must be making so much more money or they're making money off it. Here we're conflating two things. One is concern about vaccines that you know stories that people have heard with. Uh, frankly, anger at drug companies. Uh, I think a lot of us have questions about the amount of money that drug companies charge, not just for vaccines, but for other drugs. And when you look at how much money they're, you know, that they charge for these vaccines, you might think, well, they're just in this for the money. I will say that, again, I'm no expert on drug policy, but of all the things that drug companies make, vaccines probably have one of the lowest margins of uh, uh, a profit for them. This is something that is done largely for the public good. Um, and so uh, I think it is really important for us to question drug policy, to advocate for uh, the ability of government to negotiate drug prices, particularly with Medicare and Medicaid. But let's not let that, our, our, our concerns with that and our you know, anger about that color the fact that these vaccines are saving lives. Ed, I want to thank you for your question for Dr. Heller. And I know that you don't only talk about vaccines, you do medical trials for the vaccines. Why do you find it to be important to kind of put your body on the line yeah, in that way? Yeah, I'm, I'm not one of the researchers. I will say that. There are people... <laughs> My, my brain works a different way, so I'm the one who treats people. But I've actually participated in um, vaccine trials at the, uh, uh, the the St. Louis University Center for Vaccine Development. I was in a trial for a uh, for a flu vaccine a few years ago, and I feel if I'm asking people not just to give their children vaccines, but to even uh, have their children volunteer to be uh, uh, to be in vaccine studies, that it's really important that I go through that process also. And I found it very instructive. I found the people at the vaccine, uh, uh, the vaccine Development Center to be very professional, to be very caring. They were looking for any problem that might, might arise with this vaccine. Again, this is one of the things when we see these vaccines coming out or going onto the market, these things have been in the pipeline and have been developed for a decade or more. It's taken that long to go through animal studies to small phase one studies, phase two, phase three, until they finally make it to market. And a lot of vaccines don't make it. So uh, the thing is, I've uh, I've been in those studies, and uh, it was uh, it was a really great experience for me. And now I feel like, you know, if I'm asking people to get their kids vaccinated, I have to know what it's like to go through that process myself. And very quickly, if somebody is also interested in participating in uh, some of these studies or other studies that might be looking for volunteers, where can they find that info? Well, yeah, you can call the uh, SLU Vaccine Center. Uh, the, I'm sorry, the SLU Center for Vaccine Development at 
9776333. That's 9776333. And um, uh, you can also go to www.slu.edu dot or slash news slash announcements and i think that you will have the, all of this on your your website here at st louis public radio too. absolutely you've been on here a few times before dr ken haller st louis university associate professor of pediatrics thank you for joining us today it was great to talk to you this is st louis on the air on st louis public radio 90.7 kwmu